This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by round six of the Align Chicken Challenge. Ooh, Carson, yeah. as always, our Emperor of Chicken. We pass it off MC to you. Ooh, I like MC. That. I like, yeah. I like the way that sounds. Captain Cluck. How about that? that Gentlemen, today was supposed to be the day, right? This was the Super Bowl. Right of our, this was the most anticipated matchup we had. We had Popeyes, the much ballyhooed chicken sandwich versus versus you like that versus versus the the number one seed Chick Fil A. But a funny thing happened on the way to the stadium for the for the Super Bowl. We can't get a Popeyes chicken sandwich. Nobody can get a Popeyes chicken sandwich. So I am of the opinion that Popeyes forfeits. Right, the stadium is ready. It's packed with fans. Chick Fil A's on the field. I'm gonna Popeye, push back. Popeyes and I'm gonna push back. I'm gonna push back. I'm gonna take. Popeye's Council to go go with the, the two tenders I have sitting right here in front of me with my biscuit with smothered in the sauce and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna go with that guy. So, so to continue my football analogies, he would he would like to play with scabs. Exactly. He's playing with scabs. Yeah, I don't think so. You're, you're in the problem. strike season, the Redskins are three and zero with scab teams. FYI. There you go. What was what was the movie with the scabs back in the football movie? Oh, one Keanu Reeves. Yeah. What was that? I can't remember. I can't remember either. A terrible movie. But anyway, so I'm going to go ahead. I'm picking Popeyes. And let me tell you why I'm picking Popeyes. Even though I love. Just because you like to say Popeyes. I also. It's a southern sound of Popeyes. Popeyes is kind of. It's an underdog story. I, Popeyes has always had a place in my heart, but I kind of forgot about them. And I, I've been so Chick fil A. It's kind of rooty for you. That's exactly it. I'm carrying Popeyes out of the stadium on my shoulders today. I say they don't loves forfeit. a comeback story. I say they don't forfeit. I'm going with Popeyes. They're my guys. So it's going to come down to you, Mr. T5. Well, I tell you, you know, you're picking amongst family here, and I have learned over the last month and a half more about chicken than I ever wanted to know. I've eaten more P chicken sandwiches. PHC. I've eaten more chicken sandwiches <laughs> in the last six weeks than I've eaten in the last six years. But, and they're all delicious. But I, I'm kind of an old school. You kick me in, you kick me around a lot for being the old guy. I, Try to you know play by the rules. I'm a law and order kind of guy, and you gotta post. You gotta show up in the ring. You gotta you gotta show up for work and punch that time card. And we the second time we've had to cobble together a Popeye sandwich to compete. I let it go one time and, and had a little asterisk on the cobble together. Yeah. And this time, it just doesn't feel right. Chick-fil-A, once again, posted. They showed up in the ring in their satin robe. Their gloves were on. They were ready. And there was nobody on the side of the ring. At the weigh-in, there was nobody there weighing in. You know, so I, I'm going to break the tie, and I'm going to say that uh, Chick-fil-A moves on to the final. The, the name of that movie is The Replacements. And there is no replacement <laughs> in, in this case. You see how excited Carson was? He remembered the name of the movie. Yeah, I mean, look at his face. Look, yeah. It looks so, like he's got a, a donut truck to stop so, in front of his house. So what's, what's next week? So next week's the final. Zaxby's yep. versus Chick-fil-A. Oh, my goodness. Zaxby's, their sandwich is very similar to Chick-fil-A's. This is going to be, I, I may, we, this may be a Pepsi challenge deal because there is a butter, it's a butter bun, it's a pickle, it's the same. It's going to be a big throw down. You might need to do a blindfold. I'm, I'm Interestingly, you know, we've been at the corporate headquarters of both Popeyes and Chick-fil-A yeah. in the last week, so it's been interesting to see, you know, their own presentations of their chicken and how they're doing it for their own employees. It's kind of, kind of interesting stuff to be on the inside of the chicken challenge. Let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We need a political revolution, and we will make America great again. 
From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, well, it's finally happening. The SEIU has begun their long-threatened campaign to organize McDonald's workers, starting with outlets in New York City, as well as some Chipotle restaurants. We'll discuss what's next and what the ramifications could be. And speaking of New York City, at the behest of the restaurant industry, Grubhub has found itself in the sights of the mayor and city council. Is this a one-off or the beginning of the industry's entry into the new economy issues? We'll kick that around. And Elizabeth Warren and Julian Castro have released their labor agendas they are so far to the left that Bernie Sanders is having to play catch-up. Let that soak in for a minute. We'll try to make some sense of that as well. We'll talk about those stories and wrap it up with the Legislative Scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my line colleagues, Franklin Coley and Carson Chandler. And Franklin... As the Germans would say, the Anschluss is here. This is it. It has happened. It has arrived. This is it. The unions in New York City, the SCIU, have crossed the Rubicon and have begun an official organizing drive at our friends at Chipotle and our friends at McDonald's. I mean, we've been talking about this for years and years. The Fight for 15 has laid the groundwork for this forever. $15 in a union, blah, blah, blah. And here's the union part, ready to go. My friend, you have the long-awaited floor. You know how I started my day today? Searching the NLRB database to see any, if any election petitions were filed. You now, know, I'm going to probably start my day every morning for the next two months hitting refresh in the NLRB petition database. You know you have no life if at 6 in the morning you are fishing through the NLRB database. That's yeah. what makes you you, Franklin. Yeah. So no election petitions have been filed as of yet. And I will say this, that local 32BJ, the local uh, SEIU uh, union files a heck of a lot of unfair labor practice complaints against janitorial companies, which is kind of their bread and butter. But um, so it is it is stock full of, of ULPs. Yeah, I mean, this is this is it. And just stopping for a second, backing up a little bit. If some random blog had said that the SEIU has officially begun its unionization campaign, we probably wouldn't be paying attention to it or making, oh, this is it, here we go. This is Steve Greenhouse who is saying this. Who, Explain to the audience who Steve Greenhouse is. I'm going to use Joe Kefauver language. He is the dean yes, he is. of labor reporting. In he America. Is, he is the guy. In fact, he's out with a book right now called Beaten Down, Worked Up which is essentially the story of the SEIU Fight for 15 campaign. He is literally the historian of, you know, the in-house historian of the SEIU Fight for 15 campaign. So when he's making a distinction that now we are going to be holding, the SEIU is officially launching its unionization campaign, he understands the nuances of the words and what it means to be officially begin a unionization campaign rather than kind of the rhetoric that we've been hearing about, oh, we're going to unionize for the past five years. When I, when I was first at Walmart, uh, Steve Greenhouse covered Walmart for the New York Times as the labor reporter. And I mean, he would use us like a pinata. I mean, it was just a beat down day after day by Steve Greenhouse. That's his business, baby. I got a lot of Steve Greenhouse shrapnel and flinching. Some nights I don't sleep well. You know, like last like night. Like apparently. last night. Well, Steve Greenhouse is on the warpath, so yeah. I, I don't sleep anymore. So I, I saw you, I saw you kind of, your eye twitch a little bit when I said his name. Yeah, so. yeah. It brings back fond, fond memories. So what he what he announced this week, or what he wrote about this week that the SEIU announced more appropriately, is this is it. They are now, 
going to begin their campaign. They have pro-union cards signed, according to the article, in 50 restaurants, and those are Chipotle and McDonald's locations across the New York City area. Okay, so we know why McDonald's. McDonald's has been the poster child for this. They can't succeed at McDonald's. They're going to have trouble, and it's been the the symbol of the the, the effort for years and years and years so far. But why Chipotle? And by the way, we'll talk about in the legislative scorecard, but they lost in California a joint employer claim that would have allowed them to spread liability across the franchisee and the franchisor, and that has been the challenge with McDonald's. That challenge does not exist with Chipotle because they are all corporate-owned stores. Well, I don't know about all of them, but these in McDonald's, these in New York are corporately owned. All these in New York are corporately owned stores. So what I suspect happened is they essentially have gotten a significant number of signed cards in Chipotle locations, and they're like, we're going to unionize these Chipotles. But you can't really kick off the Fight for 15 unionization campaign unless you got McDonald's in there, too. So I suspect, and obviously this has been done with at least some assistance of the city of New York because they have been part of this, you know, we've been talking about it for a month now, these scheduling violations, compliance problems that we've had in Chipotle locations. So the SEIU has been in there probably for a long time, and then using some of these new laws to amp up the workforce and and create a division between managers and the workers, and I suspect they feel they have critical mass now. They usually don't go live with filing an election petition until they have 60 to 80 percent cards signed within a store. Because people, a certain number of people will feel pressure in public to sign those cards, and you know, maybe in private, not really vote for a union. And, and they haven't really heard the employer's case yet. Right. Not in a real way. Right. Um, so you which, gotta have a super majority. You gotta really pad, run up the score on these cards before you file, because you know you're gonna lose a third of those votes during the process. You need 30% to file an election petition with the NLRB, which kicks off the official process, which I was looking for this morning to see if the official process had kicked off anywhere. And that really like sets everything in motion. From there, and then you know we're in a expedited time frame with you know kind of ambush election. The whole election procedure starts from there, and we will have experts on in I think next week, but also in the coming weeks to talk through what exactly that process looks like, what it will look like in New York City probably, and then what it would look like just generally around the country if this thing spreads. Fun fact: people may forget, but uh, for a brief window of time, McDonald's actually owned Chipotle. Remember that? Huh? I remember the day they bought Chipotle and they. And they sold Chipotle. So, uh, being New York City, Franklin, being in you know entering an election cycle that seems to have already been going on, I'm tired of it. Being McDonald's, this is going to get a lot of press coverage. And I suspect the SEIU, with their friends at Berlin Rose and in the PR machine, it's well. Uh, entrenched in the New York media, you know, cabal. This is going to get a lot, a lot of media attention, I would assume. Guess where all the presidential candidates will be this weekend? Hold on. New York? Not New York, but they will be at the SEIU Unions for All forum, and they will all be addressing the crowd, speaking to these exact union, these exact issues, including the one everyone's excited about is Elizabeth Warren, who released her labor plan this week and basically included all of these items in it. And she is, uh, you know, arguably the front runner now. She is certainly carrying kind of the mantle in this. So and we'll talk about that in our second section. We'll dive into what she's what she's talking about in that labor platform for the, and a couple of the others. For the purposes of this conversation, this is not just a New York City conversation that's gonna happen. 
the Democrat presidential candidates are going to be talking about this this weekend in front of big cable TV news channels and print media outlets around the country. If you have, and I suspect the SEAU is in a position to do this, a second wave in four or five cities, Portland would be one that I could see happening pretty quickly, then, then you really start to build a national narrative around this. And this is what we've always talked about and we've kind of been expecting and waiting for for many years now. And, you know, maybe maybe the timing is right. Franklin, we used to... We used to uh, or wrong, com- we, better. We, we used to comment back in the day, I'm talking about, you know, four, five, six years ago, that seemed like... Almost every time the Fight for 15 or Rock would have some kind of national day of action, strikes or walkouts or slowdowns or whatever it was, the the news cycle got hijacked by some incredible breaking news story. Something would happen, a storm or act of violence, something would would just suck the life out of the news cycle and they wouldn't get the press coverage and we we would, not lament, we would kind of laugh that it seemed like they were snake bit. So here's this big unionization effort. Biggest brand in the world, New York City, biggest market in the world. And here they've got to be lamenting that this news cycle is going to be dominated for the next couple of weeks about Ukraine and impeachment. And, you know, here they are, snake bit again. I find it kind of interesting. I don't disagree. There's, it's going to be a crowded news cycle. But I would say that they have had success driving their narrative around the country in that we have $15 an hour minimum wages everywhere. They're on the verge. The, the presidential candidates have stock and barrel adopted all the tenets of this Fight for 15 campaign, and they may be on the verge of actually finally, at long last, unionizing some locations. So they're different audiences, right? But but clearly they've, they've their message over the years has penetrated with, with some of their ta- target audiences. So if you're brands and you're operating in New York City, not necessarily in anywhere else, but especially in New York, you know, you need to be talking to your team on the ground, to your managers. They need to be aware that this is going on. They need to be cognizant that there's a, a broader effort, you know, just behind this effort. They need to be educated. They need to have their earload of the ground. They need to make sure that they are doing a good job with regard to employee relations and, and the culture of the restaurant and so forth because any slip up now is magnified, correct? Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're a franchisee or you're a brand and you have locations in New York City and you haven't been doing this, you are way behind the eight ball because I can almost guarantee you that there are union cards signed in your location. I mean, because they've been there so long organizing, there's so much turnover that there's SEIU folks that have been in your stores for years now. So if you haven't done all that stuff, you're behind the eight ball. The good news is you can listen to this podcast over the coming weeks and, and hopefully get, yeah, get we're your, stay right your ship. We're going to stay very close to this, but brands need to be talking to their teams in New York, educating them what's going on, and making sure they are aware, and they're, they're, again, their ears low to the ground, and they're not doing anything cosmically stupid inside the four walls of their restaurant. That's that's good advice. Yeah, Yeah. that's Dr. Yeah. Yeah. Avoid those cosmically stupid items. Por favor. So, Franklin, we've um, been having for now, what, five weeks our own chicken challenge here at Align Public Strategies. Maybe. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep, five weeks. Yeah. And, you know, started off the top of the top of the show with the latest face off. But Democratic presidential candidates are playing, having a chicken challenge of their own, kind of a, a labor challenge. And each week, uh, you know, somebody else releases their labor plan, their big labor platform. And it's kind of a game of one upsmanship and oh, yeah, you, you got this, I'll, I'll see you're this and raise you that and so forth. So this week, you know, too much fanfare. Who was uh, up in the chicken challenge this week? The Democrat presidential primary chicken challenge. This week we had Elizabeth Warren <laughs> facing off against Julian Castro. So they brought their platforms to bear. Franklin, what was in there that's relevant for our audience? Uh, everything. 
that wraps up this segment. Yeah. All these issues we've been talking about for years that have been kind of this, not not really mainstream issues. They have been kind of fringy issues. They are now mainstream. So I'll just give you the, the highlights. We could spend 30 minutes digging into their, their whole platforms, but the highlights that are in both plans, no poach agreements. Who the hell was talking about no poach agreements three years ago? Frank and Coley. Probably yet. Advanced scheduling. Franklin Coley. That's in there. That is in their plans. The presidential believe, platform. I can't believe something as mundane as scheduling. Yeah, is in a presidential platform. It's crazy. Sectoral bargaining. Franklin Coley. So this is the German style, you know. So you must be good. Yeah, you know, workforce based bargaining that we now have, you know, in, in certain cities, really around ride sharing is where a lot of the conversation is. But the conversation started elsewhere, and including, you know, the QSR industry, there was a lot of conversation. We do, should do sectorial bargaining. That is in both these plans. That's in basically everyone else's plans too. That is crazy. I mean that that was a, that was a kind of a theoretical does, concept does ten raising, years ago. Car crazy spelled differently than crazy. Is it like it have an extra couple of A's in there? It's, it's extra crazy. It has it starts with a K. It's probably. like extra crispy chicken. That's that's extra crazy. There you go. So I mean, you know, a decade ago that was a European thing, which was you know not a, not American, right? And now it it is. Now there's legitimate policy conversation about instituting that approach here in in the United States of these Americas. So the other thing I'd say is Warren's is being characterized as more expansive and far-reaching, I think because of one provision. She wants to outlaw right to work. And I I think that's the one thing that called, I guess everybody's probably probably defaults to Warren is going to be more expansive. But Castro's is... Castro highlights portable benefits. Yeah. I mean, mean, that's, to me, that's, that's pretty interesting. Yeah. We haven't had we haven't had that before, but I think for our audience, you, you hit on the, the the main points. It's these things that were fringe, these things that were you know no one was talking about even two or three years ago. We always talk about the life cycle of an issue on this podcast and how that's been speeding up. But the idea of these fringe things like no poach and scheduling things that nobody on the streets ever heard. And of. there are issues, and they are they are there issues. are issues. Yeah. The the no poach agreements now. There's re, there's other companies that have been pulled into that industries, right? But it started with us. And it's the franchise industry. Even even when it's like different sectors, it's really the franchise industry which we end up being the standard bearer for for a variety of different reasons. But when you talk about advanced scheduling, that was the retailers really started that issue, then they olayed it and now we're owning it and wearing it. That's our issue. And so a lot of sectoral bargaining is has come into fad because of these new economy, gig economy issues. A lot of this stuff are our issues are the presidential candidates labor platforms. It's yeah. crazy. I think and you spoke to it, but I want to, you know, kind of emphasize for, for the audience is that the coalescence, the moving to the center of gravity, the center of the conversation of sector based bargaining, I think should put alarm signals into every boardroom in this industry. I mean sector based bargaining is a big deal. I don't think a lot of our companies really kind of understand a, what literal definition of that is, or B, the ramifications of that are. Um, I think that's a big, big deal at how mainstream and how it's part of the conversation. You mentioned Uber and Lyft. They can section off areas of industries from other parts of industry that, A, from a political perspective, make it very difficult to fight these things alone. A lot of this labor stuff, if the business community is, is locked together, can have a, a higher degree of success pushing back on it. When you divide and conquer and you pluck this industry out of the mix and you go after it, it's alone out there politically. It's very difficult. So these two announced and they joined 
three, four, five others. Some of the others that have released labor plans have actually dropped out now, so I don't know what the exact count is. But a, a, a bunch of presidential candidates have announced their labor plans. Senator Sanders was one who had previously announced his labor plan, but in between his first stint and his second stint this week, I think a staffer told him that he was getting outdone. He's getting lapped. Yeah, so he quickly rolled out a new CEO pay initiative he is going to sponsor or has sponsored and of course it'll become part of his presidential platform so hold um, on you're saying the, the socialist candidate has fallen behind the field that's right in the labor space that's right that should yeah that kind of um, sums it up so not to be outdone he proposed a ceo tax this week 50 times if you have 50 times more executive compensation ceo compensation than the median number for the workforce then you're going to get taxed and it's actually a sliding scale basically it's portland we've been talking about for a year or two now the portland model and their ceo tax could get picked up to other jurisdictions well now bernie sanders is calling for a federal ceo tax which is it's going to be one of these fringe issues now that's going to be popping up everywhere in jest, that was in jest this the first step the second step but we i wish senator sanders a speedy recovery and uh, look forward to him back in the campaign trail, reclaiming the mantle from these other wannabes. And the yeah. uh, is the leader of the, the 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 labor, the voice of labor in the campaign trail. Yeah, Bernie Bernie's feeling his own burn right yeah. now. So 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 pay attention to this this stuff. It's uh, it's important. We'll see who tries to lap the field next week with the with the rollout of their own little labor platform. Well, Franklin, we spent a lot of time in our office with our, our folks and on this podcast talking about the modern economy and that confluence of old economy industries and not in a new economy world and delivery, obviously, and third-party delivery and restaurant deliveries right at the forefront, tip of that spear. And um, we had a little, we're having a little scuffle in New York City that is kind of representative of that whole transaction, that whole, you know, the, the whole situation, if you will. And I thought the New York Times had a great headline, very simple headline uh, this week. It just said, New York versus Grubhub. The city is going after, listening to complaints of restaurateurs and other businesses and kind of going after Grubhub. Level the playing field, set the stage for the audience of what's happening in New York City. You said we've been talking about we need to be involved in these new economy conversations and the rules of the new economy are being written today for the next 50 years and if we're not there then we're gonna we're gonna be left behind. And lo and behold, we've actually been drugged into this conversation in New York City. And I think this is the first of probably many similar conversations that will occur around the country. Essentially, what New York City and the city members of the city council are worried about is that restaurateurs and, you know, the examples they use inside are kind of small indies, but restaurateurs are kind of being taken advantage of by these delivery platforms. And so what they are discussing and what they are hearing is through a series of restaurant roundtables around the city, they're hearing kind of these stories of how tough it is to operate and some of the inequities or injustices that have been perpetrated against restaurateurs. This should sound eerily familiar to restaurateurs in New York City. They're just used to being on the other side of this convo. And so New York City is essentially looking to go in and mandate fee structures, mandate commissions, potentially go in and regulate on kind of how the advertising works. You know, one of the chief complaints of restaurateurs is Grubhub will snatch up kind of domains and essentially their Grubhub is trying to own that customer relationship 
and and pull it away from the restaurant. And some of the tactics that they've used in the past, and Grubhub's not doing some of the stuff now, but some of the tactics they've used in the in the past have been called into question in that regard. So anyway, it's a uh, it's an ongoing conversation. It's an interesting one, and I would not be surprised if we see New York City do something in this space. To me, they're, they're, they're kind of two issues. And you always want to be a credible and honest broker. And for a bunch of restaurant owners to complain about high commissions and prices is really... So you're a bunch of conservative restaurant owners until it comes to your business and you want government to intervene and price control some other third-party business, I think is ridiculous. And a restaurateur that's charging $100 for a $20 bottle of wine is is complaining about high commissions. I mean, it's a little, it, it well, doesn't pass the laugh test. Now, the second piece, the data, that's a whole different conversation. And that's a legit conversation. If you don't want to pay those high commissions, then don't have them deliver your food. But, you know, don't don't take American Express if you don't want those high commissions. I mean, it's, that's part of doing business. You, you, you can't cry foul uh, only when it's convenient for you and then and then tell the city to get out of your business when it's convenient for you as well. I, I find yeah. that a little, little hypocritical. But the data the data piece is very important. Well, and it's, it's, it's unclear which restaurants are out there clamoring for this. And, you know, but yeah, I, th- I think you need to have consistency. You can't demand market intervention on this and then show up at city council the next day and complain about market intervention on scheduling law or paid vacation, which is still under discussion, or, you know, the variety of other issues at city council. Joint employer, right? So you can't can't show up one day and say, City Council, we need you to intervene because the platform has too much economic power and they're wielding it against us. And, you know, and then turn around the next day and essentially argue they not do that, right? So, yeah, there's a consistency issue here. That being said, I do think that we as an industry should use these restaurant roundtables and this conversation to have broader conversations about the new economy, the future of work, and just take this, try to take this conversation in other directions and, and really kind of hijack the process. That's what I would like to see kind of play out out of this. I don't think it's happening enough that we're forcing these types of conversations, and I think we should take it in another direction, if you will. Yeah, I, I think this whole transition to a new economy opens up a lot of public policy opportunities for us. I hate to see us right out of the box go cry to government for cover, for help. Again, that's hypocritical to what we do. We ought to be going. To, we ought to be petitioning government to open up a lot of the constraints of, of the old economy. We, we should be going to government to, to say, hey, let's create a new playing field on taxation and liability and benefits and wages and independent contractors. Let's, let's, we have this whole playing field we can play in. And our first, our first second out of the locker room, we run over to the sideline and cry to government that somebody's getting into our kitchen. I, I understand the tactics of this, but the strategy is wrong. Let's so the conversation. Let's go have the conversation about why does Grubhub's have so much market leverage over individual restaurants or individual operators, and let's talk about their business model as an independent contractor business model. If many of these restaurants were to hire delivery drivers, they would be traditional employees, and so automatically, as are everyone that's working in the locations, automatically the traditional restaurant company is at a competitive disadvantage in some ways. And let's have that conversation. And that's the conversation we should be having. Well, but if if a bunch of restaurants, if if a meaningful nexus of restaurant people said, all right, we're going to let the marketplace decide this, and we're not going to use Grubhub. We'll use other other platforms. And Grubhub lost a lot of business. I think Grubhub would would change their policies to get that business back. Let's compete in the marketplace. It's not going to cry to the city council. Yeah, no doubt. 
No doubt, but the city council and, and the state legislature and the feds have a have a place in kind of leveling the playing field. And if and one company is under requirements to have basically all employees, and another company is under a different set of requirements, then that that is an inequity that we could talk about policymakers looking at and addressing. And that's a good conversation to have. That's a good conversation to have. That's the conversation we ought to be having. And again, I'm just disappointed that kind of the first one out of the box is protect us from high commissions. You know, I, I'm sure they wouldn't would like that if somebody was protecting them from high alcohol markups. So, yeah, but it's it's an it's an important issue. I wrote about it this week in Nation's Restaurant News that there's nothing but opportunity for us in this space. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do. But you know, one example I cited was, you know, why aren't we using all this disruption, this changing landscape, to question the three tier system? Why you know, a prohibition era, the most old school you know, regulatory regimes in the, the sit-down restaurant industry. We ought to be using all of this turmoil and disruption to find a way to take that outdated structure and totally rid ourselves of it. Instead, we're talking about commissions on Grubhub, so it's just kind of a little disappointing. But uh, more to come on that. This is uh, obviously, you know, the issue set of the next generation for this industry in this, in this, in this space, and um, we, we've got to be smart how we approach it. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the key legislative and regulatory developments that happened this week. And as always, we start with wages. Franklin, something's on the move up, up in Connecticut. Yeah, this has been a conversation ongoing since the end of legislative session. It was, you know, it came down to the wire, trying to push everything out of the process. And there was a big disagreement uh, between the governor and the industry and legislators over what to do around the 80-20 rule. The uh, Connecticut standard was close to the old Obama administration 80-20 standard, which was updated under the Trump administration. So the state standard was out of step with the federal standard. The industry and legislators wanted to bring it into alignment, and uh, they were unable to do that. So now it looks like we have a deal. The governor has approved it. He's calling a special session next week for legislators to come in and approve this deal. And then he is saying that he will promulgate uh, new rules via the state labor department kind of moving forward that hopefully will uh, clean this issue up for for operators. I am kind of impressed that uh, there aren't many states where the restaurant industry could have the political standing to essentially insist on a special session of the legislature. So hat tip to the Connecticut Restaurant Association and and their uh, leadership for being able to to pull pull that one off, and they did they did industry meetings with the governor throughout the summer, so it was kind of yeah, it's impressive. Yeah. I mean, uh, shout out to Connecticut. Switching uh, out west to Denver, Colorado. Yeah, out in Denver this week, we had our first hearing on the mayor's minimum wage proposal. Typically, when a mayor proposes an ordinance, that baby is flying through. And most of the city council, I think, is just co-sponsored to it as well. So. Yeah, so it's more or less a done deal. This thing would go up to a 1587 by 2021 with an initial bump to 18, excuse me, 1380 an hour starting in January 1 of this year, this coming year, and it preserves a tip credit, which is mandated in state law. So Denver's maybe the first, it ain't going to be the last in the state of Colorado to raise minimum wage above the state standard. Switching to uh, paid leave, Franklin, one of the areas we've been watching for a long time, uh, it's been playing out in the state of Texas, San Antonio. It's been this back and forth couple cities doing paid leave. Is it preempted by state law? The Attorney General's gotten involved. It's been this saga for the better part of a year, but some 
There was some movement this week. When the city of San Antonio decided to delay going down this route because they were going to see how Austin played out in the courts, I think at least I and I assume everyone kind of thought, well, that that's a very level-headed thing to do. Lo and behold, they were just trying to figure out the weaknesses in the Austin ordinance so they could improve there so it could better withstand a court challenge. So they have now done that. They have strengthened the ordinance in a couple of of ways that they think you know, it has a better chance of surviving court challenge. And yeah, they approved that sucker. It is going to be going into effect um, December 1. I think it's, is it 64 hours? So like eight days a year, basically. It is a big number. This is a big, big, big mandate, one of the larger in the country. So San Antonio employers are going to have to deal with that on December 1. I think it will be challenging court. We'll see how that plays out. And related, uh, in Los Angeles, the, the mayor has announced a proposal of his for a six-week parental leave policy for city employees. Obviously, it doesn't affect private sector employees in the industry and so forth, but I thought it was important that the nation's second largest city, there's a parental leave conversation going on, and I can't see a scenario where down the road it doesn't ultimately spill over to ours, but it's something that's put on the radar screen. Switching to uh, labor policy, Franklin, you know, we talked about it with New York last week as a ramification of uh, AB5, but uh, in the land of Lincoln, Looks like maybe some action as well. Yeah, the same state lawmaker that pushed through the $15 an hour minimum wage increase has now picked up this issue and is has announced, he hasn't written the legislation yet, but he has announced this is going to be his big issue in this next legislative session. He is going to write a California-style independent contractor law based off of AB5. And, uh, you know, the reporter tried to pin him down on the exact provisions, and he basically said that it hadn't been written yet. You know, The, the SEIU hasn't written it for him yet. Right. But this thing, something's going to come out of the pipeline in Illinois this year, most likely, and it's going to be similar to California. So the concerns that we have in California are now concerns in New York and Illinois, and I suspect probably some other places for it said and done. Again, once that conversation's open in a, especially in a political forum like Illinois, big blue state where we can't control the agenda of the conversation, while it may be focused initially on Uber and Lyft, it could spill over the same conversation we're having in California. So it's a very important one to watch. Speaking of watching uh, and researching Seattle, Washington, a little bit of news out there on scheduling. Yeah, their um, Office of Labor Standards, or whatever it's called, their city, their little mini DOL at the city has shot out a notice to employers that on October 11th, they're going to release an evaluation of the scheduling law there in the city. It was required when the legislation was passed that researchers would study the impacts the first two years, and so this is... um, kind of the two-year study. So that's researchers from Rutgers, uh, I think it's UC Berkeley. UC UC San Francisco. Thank you. And then the University of Washington. And then you alluded to this earlier, Franklin, but staying in California, you you alluded to McDonald's uh, legal victory. Anything you want to elaborate on that? No, it's a big deal. It's a big deal to win under California law. There's still obviously the complaint that's hanging out there at the NLRB that has not been resolved. The administrative law judge did not approve the settlement that was struck between McDonald's and the NLRB general counsel. So that thing's still twisting in the wind. But this is uh, this is a big win to find. And in fact, the courts found that McDonald's corporate was aware of the labor violations of the franchisees. There was, there's plenty of proof of that, but they did not meet the direct control standard. So it's a big W. And we've talked a lot about on this pod that, you know, as, as, as fast as policymakers and legislators and city councils and state governments are kind of changing the playing field 
of wages and benefits, the the marketplace and companies themselves seem to be changing it even faster. And a major employer this week uh, did just that. Sheets, a major uh, convenience store company, mostly concentrated on the East Coast. I think they're Pennsylvania-based, but big chunk of the country has, has Sheets. Made some big announcements this week in the wage and benefit space. And definitely a food retailer. I mean, um, yes, very much so. Good point. Yeah, kind of like Wawa and Seven Eleven. They have they have a they have food offerings, to-go food offerings, and, and good food. Yeah, they're going to spend an additional seventeen million this year or over the next year in uh, a wage increase, but also uh, medical insurance, 401k plan, tuition reimbursement, and paid time off. I mean, the whole menu. Yeah. No so pun intended. That's looking like a very kind of, it's looking a lot less like an entry-level employment deal and a lot more like a traditional kind of employment arrangement. It's just it's just up in the bar in that, in that race for employees that, that recruit and retain uh, employees. So it's interesting. We haven't seen too much uh, movement like that in the convenience store space, but it'll be interesting to see what Sheets is competitors. And you mentioned Wawa, and there's obviously 7 Eleven and some other big brands. We'll see how much that moves the marketplace. So, um, as we alluded to last week, you know, it's a pretty short scorecard. We've talked about most of the major issues at the top of the pod, but uh, we got some things. Obviously, we'll report next week on what's happening in Connecticut or what did happen, if anything, and more public hearings in Denver, and obviously the ongoing saga in New York on a lot of fronts. So, uh, we'll talk to you next week. So, guys, another another interesting week, another long week, but. Um, you know, going back to the one thing we forgot at the top of the show, talking about uh, the Popeyes and the chicken sandwich, was that uh, uh, RBI, the parent company of Burger King and Popeyes and Tim Horton Donuts, is doing some good government affairs work uh, last week and had the governor of the great state of Florida in their headquarters uh, meet the team and taking a tour. And as I understand it, even the honorable, even, even the even, gov, even the gov couldn't get even the, the gov sandwich. couldn't get a sandwich. Franklin, what do you think on that? I think if I when I was there, I couldn't get a chicken sandwich. The governor. Shouldn't be able to get one either. That's what I think. The governor, his pregnant wife, pleading for a chicken sandwich, pleading for a Popeye sandwich. No sandwich to be had. He did get a T-shirt. He did get a T-shirt. Yeah. yeah. And it's and it reads, "I went to Popeyes for the new chicken sandwich, and all I got was this lousy T-shirt." So good work, RBI, having the gov in and uh, showing him around the test kitchens and everything. Yeah, get that guy a sandwich. Give me a sandwich. Get anybody a sandwich. One little uh, programming note, uh, as was mentioned last week, in 10 days starts MUFSO, Multi-Unit Food Service Operators Conference, in Denver, and Franklin and I will be there doing some live potting, so stop by the booth, say hi, and maybe we'll do a little interview. See you next week.